remember the day it came out and landed in my mailbox and thinking like, I have made it. And like the sad thing is like, you have not made it. <laughs> hey, it's your CNF and buddy, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey, and this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast. My guest today is AC Shilton, freelancer, farmer, lover of chickens. Let's do an ad read. Creative Nonfiction Podcast, greatest podcast in the world. Discover your story, man, with Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being, quote, filled with positive reinforcement and a commitment. They have true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions, big and small. And it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere. End quote. Don't just take her word for it, man. Apply now at baypath.edu slash MFA. Classes begin January 21st, 1st, 1st. Also want to give it a shout out to River Teeth for the promotional support. They are a journal of nonfiction narrative. Go check them out, riverteethjournal.com, for submission guidelines and maybe even subscribe. Why not? Go ahead. Do it. Okay. That's it. So here we are. I can only keep I can only keep it in the cage for so long. It's rattling the cage, man. Brief. So maybe you're a legacy CNF or hey, maybe you're here for the first time. This is what we do. I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, and audio producers about the art and craft of telling true stories. I chart their journey and try and tease out what inspires them and how they go about the work in the face of existential dread. Maybe that's just me, and let me tell you, Ain't a whole lot of work getting done around these parts. Did you check out the CNF snack episode? The three-minute job? Get used to it, man. Another one coming Monday, Monday, Monday. Sometimes you need a little something that's not an hour of your time, am I right? Something you can listen to while you're brushing your teeth or putting on your deodorant. I don't know why I'm using bathroom activities, but three minutes, that's... You should be brushing your teeth. You should be taking about two to three minutes. I, I'm not here to tell you how to brush your teeth. Just just a suggestion. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFPod. Instagram's at CNFPod. Facebook, at CNFPodcast. And head over to BrendanOmera.com, hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the monthly newsletter where I give out reading recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. Once a month, no spam. Far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Like I said, A.C. Shilton is here. Work's been in New York Times, Outside Magazine, Outside Online. She is why I stay on Twitter. Actually, she's one of those people because I likely would never have found her if not for Twitter. People I follow, follow her, and she's always posting pictures of her chickens and linking up the great stuff, and she engages on the platform, and I was like... I dig you, I dig your work, here's an axe, let's thrash. So here we are, 
thrash metal. Oh. How does a, a, a journalist come to own a farm? Right. Um, so I thought about what can I do that is even less lucrative and more work than freelance journalism. Um, and I decided <laughs> owning a farm was the next best thing. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. My husband works for the National Park Service. So we've kind of bounced around the country going from park to park. And um, we ended up here in rural Tennessee. He's at Big South Fork National River and Recreation Area. And uh, we ended up here. And I, I really just loved it from the, the moment we kind of pulled into our like temporary housing when we first got you know moved here uh i kind of felt like oh this is this is the right spot for me um and so um i grew up in washington dc so you know i'm kind of a city kid through and through but growing up i always wanted to have a farm and it's funny i tell this story about like you know helping my dad with you know very basic lawn work you know as a kid um and i would always turn it into an imaginary game that i was playing farm um and I was feeding animals and things like that. And so we started kind of looking around. And the great thing about rural Tennessee, I mean, there's a lot of struggles here too, of course, but one of the great things is land is very affordable. Um, and so we started kind of looking around and uh, we had originally wanted to just have enough room to, I love to garden. So, you know, have enough room to garden and I have, um, I have a couple of horses. So just, just, you know, we're looking for, you know, maybe five to 10 acres in a house. And well, we spent a couple of years looking for that and that never ended up, the right spot never ended up, you know, presenting itself. And so this place came online and, um, it's 45 acres. Uh, so it was not at all what we were shopping for. Um, it has been run as a traditional cattle farm for several generations, um, meaning that they would start their cattle here and then finish them in feedlots, you know, um, not here. Uh, and so it was set up already for that. Um, but, you know, it needed a lot of work. Um, it, you know, the houses were there. There's multiple houses on it. The whole thing. I mean, it was like way more than we were like ready to bite off and chew. But because I'm a spoiled rat who like throws a tantrum when she wants something that she, you know she can't have we ended up buying it um, it's just like it's the most beautiful place um and it's you know got these rolling green hills full of old, you know mature pasture and some woods and an old barn on a hillside that's kind of falling down but it looks like you know shabby chic rustic um and it's uh it's great um so we put an offer on it and uh ended up you know purchasing it obviously and then um since that day we have been completely overwhelmed with what it actually takes to farm um so yeah here we are and we're still we still have so much work to do to get it up and running um you know but every few months we add something new and hopefully soon we'll be adding some sort of grass-fed beef or possibly meat goats i'm kind of going between the two trying to figure out exactly what i want to do from a sustainability perspective so yeah that's where we're at um i love it it's a ton of work i can't remember the last time i slept in past five 30, um, even on a weekend. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I, it's funny. I've noticed I don't want to travel anymore. Um, I turned down pretty much any sort of story which requires travel because I don't want to leave my farm. I love it. Uh, but when I do end up traveling for something, I can't wait to get home. I just, you know, I love being here. So that's amazing. Uh, so how do you, how do you start to, um, balance the, the freelance journalism aspect that you've built the, you know, your, your young professional career towards with, you know, with the, essentially what is a full-time job of raising your animals and tending to your land. 
Yeah. So, well, the thing is that I am hardly alone on this. So there's this interesting statistic. I wish I had it in front of me to get the exact numbers, but basically the USDA like keeps track of, you know, how farmers are doing and young farmers across the board are having to work multiple jobs to keep their farms afloat because to get in, to get the land, to get the equipment is so cost intensive. Uh, You know, farming is just not lucrative, especially on a small scale. Um, and so, you know, the farming that, you know, I'm doing or, you know, people like me are doing, it's a money loser. And so all of us have full-time jobs. So I'm really not alone in this, but yeah, it's, you know, we have, we both have our two full-time jobs, plus we have the farm work that we do. And it just means being like incredibly efficient about time management. And it means that I've had to let some things go, um, you know, both from a, you know, personal standpoint, right? Like, so at some point I realized, you know, I couldn't. Uh, I used to race triathlons and I can't do that at a competitive level, you know, and still manage my farm. So, you know, now I take advantage of, you know, an extra 40 minutes and go for a run, but that's that. And that, uh, you know, I'm not able to, you know, maintain that level of, of fitness that I used to be able to, to maintain. And that's fine. Um, so it's just kind of a matter of managing your priorities and figuring out, you know, okay, this is where we are right now. The next five years are going to be really, really hard while we set this thing up. At some point, hopefully it will start to run itself a little bit, although it'll always take a lot of care and feeding. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm also a little bit more cautious about the assignments I take, um, making sure that, you know, I've really cut back. I used to do a lot of, you know, $300 to $400, you know, web assignments, which is how I, you know, which is a good way to make money for sure. But you have to churn and burn, you know, Um, it's, you got to keep kind of moving. And I've been able to kind of say, you know, I want to spend my time more wisely attacking, you know, those bigger projects. Um, And it's scary. I will be so upfront with that, you know, saying it's really scary to turn down the, you know, the little assignments that keep your groceries, you know, coming and, you know, keep your bank account full. Um, but I, you know, have been trying to avoid the content mill, um, because I just don't have time. Mm. And, and so as you, so you grew up in DC and, uh, as a self-admitted kind of a weird kid who loved, uh, farming and weeding and dreaming of having yeah. a farm. Um, so at what point do you start to kind of get that that bug to be to be a writer and to be a journalist when does that get into your blood so i my i have a kind of a strange path in towards into journalism which is that like i originally so my degree is in sociology and i thought i was going to go get a phd um and looking back on it this all makes a lot of sense um because you know i'm fascinated by like how interactions work and how people you know um and power work and that's that's really important to journalism right uh but i didn't think about that as a career opportunity at that time my school didn't have a journalism program um so you know i thought okay, well, you know, I'm going to go get a PhD. That's going to be that. I'll do research, um, which is, you know, (laughs) what a PhD, you know, entails. Um, And then at the time I was racing bikes. Um, I was on our, you know, collegiate cycling team and I uh, was really into that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take a few years off between going back to graduate school and I'm going to work in the bicycle industry. So I got a job at a bicycling manufacturer. Uh, It was a marketing job, you know, and then I kind of got a series of marketing jobs, one of which happened to be at a newspaper. 
Um, and so I worked in the marketing department of a newspaper. Um, and uh, I realized pretty quickly in that job that I was in the wrong part of the newspaper um, and that, you know, I didn't have any sort of interest at all in, you know, something new newspaper subscriptions or advertisements. I wanted to be sitting up in the newsroom. Um, and so um, we, you know, like any newspaper, there were a lot of layoffs. Um, it was, you know, it was uh, 2000 and, ooh, 2008, 2009. Um, so, you know, newspapers were starting to really shed jobs. And so I was able to kind of start picking up a little bit of work here and there. And if they needed somebody to, you know, write, you know, blogs are really big. So I started writing a blog, you know, and, um, so I was able to kind of pick up work that way. Um, and then from there, when the newspaper closed, I was able to um, get a very, very entry-level editing position at a local magazine. Um, so it's kind of a, a, you know, a roundabout way to get into journalism. But looking back on it, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, I liked research. I liked writing. I liked thinking about people and structure and power. And so I'm li I feel really glad that I found my way here um, because it's, you know, it's what I love. What were the kind of stories that really started to stick in your craw as you cut your teeth in, in journalism? What do you mean by stick in my craw? Like, like they, they just kind of bothered me that I felt like were not be – yeah, what do you mean by that? I just want to make sure I understand it. Oh, yeah. The, so just the, the stories that maybe you couldn't escape, that you had to tell in, in that sense, yeah. that appealed to your taste. Right. So um, – Gosh, I've kind of written about everything over the years. Um, you know, as a freelancer, you're kind of just, you know, it's useful to be able to be a generalist. But the stories that have always um, interested me or brought me back um, or, like, made me feel like, you know, okay, maybe I'm making $200 for the assignment for a little local newspaper, you know, which is what happened when I was just starting out. Um, the story, but I'll, you know, kind of keep plugging away on it no matter what, even though I'm not making any money, is, um, you know, stories where, A, people are being taken advantage of or, you know, getting the runaround, that always will get me. If you call me and say, like, hey, you know, I, I, I've tried everything, you know, you're my last resort, I'm being, you know, bullied or whatever, I'm always going to sit and listen to you. Um, even if there's not a story that I end up pursuing, that just always captivates me, right? That's the best way to get my attention. Those stories, and then, you know, stories that have have broader implications for like why we behave the way we do like those always are just really interesting to me so there there's a story i wrote years ago for outside online that went super viral um about um, the end of PBR beer um, and you know basically like it was so big with hipsters and then kind of sales started falling off and it ended up being like such an interesting story because I you know interviewed a bunch of researchers about like what makes things cool um, which is like such a nebulous topic right but like it's like one of those things that just is so interesting to me because I just want to know why people feel the way they do or like why people are attracted to this thing you know and then they're suddenly not um, so those are these stories that I'm always really interested in is that, you know, anybody who is struggling against the system or, you know, kind of an explainer on, you know, why we feel the way we feel about, you know, these things in society. So what does make things cool? It's a great question. No one knows. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's like what's so like it, it's like this thing that, you know, people are always trying to put their pulse on. And it's really hard to figure out what makes things cool because the second like something is cool. And so this is what happened with PBR was like the, it was cool because it wasn't cool. But then it hit this tipping point where it became cool and then it was no longer cool. Right. Um, and so, yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's this. I don't know. Um, I don't really know what's cool. And people always ask me, you know, what makes a story go viral? And to tell you the truth, I have no clue. Um, like, and nobody does, right? Like, it's it's really interesting that, like, nobody has any clue what makes something go viral and something very similar not. Um, and, you know, we've tried to replicate that success, I think, of that story or other stories like it. Um, you know, and I just, I can never tell you what's going to, like, really just shatter the internet and what's not. As you started to gain a little bit of traction with with journalism uh what was maybe some early early validation that you might have felt from someone who might have um you know took you under their wing or mentored you a little bit and uh said that you were kind of on you were on the right path be like you know keep doing this this is something you're really good at Really early on, I had an editor at the Naples Daily News, um, and this is this is a funny story. Okay, so I moved. Uh, I was working at the Honolulu Advertiser, um, and then I worked at a Honolulu magazine, um, and and then my husband's job moved, and we moved to Florida, and I had all this experience that I, ga- I gathered in Honolulu, and I'd been an editor, so on and so forth. So we moved to Florida, and we moved to Naples, which has a small paper, um, and I thought, you know, it will be no trouble for me to get you know, a job at this local paper. I've now worked in a newspaper and a magazine. Um, and they had lots of jobs available. I ran into this stumbling block, which is that the Naples Daily News at that time, I don't know if this is the case now, but only would hire journalists with journalism degrees. I spent the next three years getting passed over for jobs, um, even though I was writing freelance for them and uh, winning a lot of their Florida Plus Press Club awards. So every mm. year they'd like, you know, they'd submit some of my stories to the Florida Press Club and every year I'd win something um, and I still couldn't get a job there. So it was really frustrating. And I had these three years of feeling like, wow, like maybe I'm not qualified to do this and second guessing myself. The good news was that I had an editor there, um, Jay Schlichter, who runs um, their little community papers um, that like, you know, they're like the like subset of the Naples Daily News. There's like this you know, community paper called the Collier Citizen that goes to like one section of its readership in this one particular area. Um, and so he oversaw that paper and he like, it's not prestigious work at all. Um, you know, the circulation is tiny. I think it's maybe even free. Um, it's community news at it's like very most, you know, like community news level. I like, I once wrote a story about an installation of a flagpole at a community center. I mean, not glamorous, but, um, he was so encouraging and he, he, you know, would always, you know, if my stories need more work, he would never, you know, he would never hesitate to, to push back and say, you know, I think we need another interview or another voice or, you know, did you think about this? Um, so he was a talented and helpful editor, uh, but he was also incredibly encouraging. Um, and if something was good, would always take the time to tell me it was good. Um, and so, you know, despite the fact that, you know, his corporate overlords were saying, you can't hire this woman. And it's funny because several editors personally asked for me to be hired and I still couldn't be hired. Um, so despite the fact that I was getting that like really, really negative feedback that like I was not qualified, I did not deserve to be in this field, having a couple of editors who kept, you know, me going, going and kept saying, yes, you do, you know, we're sorry, we can't hire you, but you know, we'll give you as much work as we can. Um, That was a a huge confidence booster. And I think kept me in the field. 
So, so from from that point on, how do you start to level up and to start um, crafting crafting pitches that are going to start landing you at more prominent, more visible outlets? Yeah, yeah. So I I, I talk to when I talk to young journalists about this, you know, I always kind of suggest starting at your local paper, um, and it is not glamorous. You will write about a flagpole, you you know. But every one of those assignments paid me. Um, I never worked for free. I always had, you know, some sort of income coming in. And then that gave me, you know, a little bit of leeway. You know, yeah, I was working my ass off on $200, you know, um, stories. So I had to write, you know, six or seven a week um, to stay afloat. But, you know, it meant that I could, you know, have a little bit of time on the side to write things just for me um, that I, you know, and, and level up and work on that. Um, and so Runner's World was the first magazine I wanted wanted to target because I've been a runner forever and ever. I think I pitched them six or seven times before I finally made it in. Um, and so that's like the like other piece of advice like to young journalists is like, keep trying. Um, you're not going to make it in your first pitch, or maybe you will um, if you're more talented than me. But like, mm-hmm. you know, it took six or seven um, tries. And I think what eventually happened was I kind of kept pitching the same editor. She edited this one section of the magazine that like I had read in like Media Bistro was relatively easy to break into right so I kind of followed all the rules like I read about how to pitch it I like picked that editor and I specifically went out and looked for stories for her that like would fit that mold um, and eventually cracked it and it but it did take a while um, and it was like a you know 200 word story and I think like this next piece is like okay so I wrote this 200 word story for this national magazine I remember the day it came out and landed in my mailbox and thinking like I have made it and like the sad thing is like you have not made it <laughs> you know, like one story like one small story in a national print magazine like does not actually elevate your profile and this is why I don't like I really suggest not writing for free because like if Runner's World had asked me to write that for free I think I would have been so tickled that I finally landed this national assignment that I would have done it um, but like it literally meant nothing you know and so they, they paid me as they should have um, but I think you know at the end of the day like you need to get paid for your work because it is work and one, you know, one assignment um, is not going to change your resume. So from there, you know, I just kind of kept pitching that editor. Um, I kept asking, you know, what they needed. Um, And then I just kind of, to be perfectly honest, I got very lucky. So I, you know, got a line on a pitch for um, Outside Magazine that was just like, I knew the second I kind of got the, like, you know, the buzz that it was like going to be just a perfect story for them. Um, It was this, uh, so I used to work at a bicycle manufacturer and um, they did this funny thing where they uh, they had a wind tunnel for aerodynamics testing, and they did a test to see if um, shaved legs versus non-shaved mm-hmm. legs were faster. And it was just like one of those things where I happened to know, you know, from having worked there, I had some old colleagues that were there, so I was one of the first people to kind of see that they were doing this, and I was able to take it immediately to outside and say, you know, I know the players, I can get you this story. And it was such a slam dunk. I just got really, really lucky there. Um, I think a lot of people do pitch, you know, over and over and have never get that foot in. So to some degree, it was luck. You know, I've been, I don't know, very lucky to be able to kind of one at a time break into that next thing and that next thing and that next thing. But it does take usually, you know, like Runner's World took me, you know, a long time to break into um, and other places as well. There are still magazines I have not broken into, despite the fact that I've tried and tried and tried. So, you know, I don't want other runners to feel like I hit everyone on the first try like I did outside. Um, That is not the case. Yeah, how did you have the 
the endurance and the the courage to keep keep pitching, even keep pitching the same person who might have been turning you down every time and not feel like you were like sort of annoying them. Like you had enough wherewithal to be like, you know, I think this is a good idea. I'm going to keep sending it to them despite the rejection. How, how did you break through there and just had the, the wherewithal to keep on going? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that really helped me was that like I got to work as an editor fairly early in my career and I was a really low level associate editor, but like we would get pitches and send them around the office. Um, and I think when you sit in that office and, and you know, you very clearly like, or quickly, it very quickly becomes clear that like, it's not actually like the, the pitch was bad. It's that we had something similar or the like issue theme wasn't quite right or you know um it's very rare that like you know a pitch is truly bad um and most of the time editors are excited to get pitches because they need ideas right and so having sat on the other side of the desk first um i think took away some of that like you know like that needling of rejection and feeling like it's you because it's really not you. It's really that it's, you know, the, what's going into the book that month or what just went into the book. And, you know, magazines work six months in advance. So like you might not realize it, but there is between now and when the story is going to publish, there are two other things that are similar already, you know? So, um, I think that really helps me with that confidence. And to be clear, I still, you know, struggle with feeling like, Oh, all my ideas are stupid. You know, <laughs> or like, <laughs> You know, or am I annoying editors or whatever? Yesterday I had to like, you know, gird myself to send that follow-up email, you know, where I know that it's, you know, probably a no, but I got to follow up just in case, um, you know, it, it still sucks. Um, but, um, I, I really quickly, I want to give a caveat about that because yesterday, um, well, I guess it was Monday. Um, I was debating whether or not to send a follow-up email because sometimes it's so, just so shitty. You're like, ah, if they haven't responded by now, they like, they don't want my story, yeah. you know, yeah. like they would have responded if they wanted it. I sent a follow-up email um, on Monday just to be like, you know, I'm just going to dot my, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's. And um, an editor at a very prestigious publication ended up coming back to me and saying, actually, yes, we do want this. Um, and I'm so, so glad I did that because I almost took it to, like, my next, you know, outlet that was going to be, you know, much lower paying. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a casual reminder to everybody to, to definitely follow up because sometimes your editors do want it and they've just forgotten um, and the worst that happens is they don't respond, right? I'm the I'm the same way too. With in terms of follow ups with big with big posts, sometimes I I get like the nibble, and, uh, and then a couple weeks will go by, and then I'm like, you know what? I'm just I've gotten into that where I just don't follow up, and then of course it, it dies on the vine. So it's uh it's really good advice that you're saying. Like even if you don't feel like it, even if you feel like it's already been rejected, like you really do just. You do the editor's inboxes just get hammered with stuff, so you yes. really do just have to kind of uh, get your thing to the top of it at a good time in the work week and the work day, and then you're like, oh yeah, that's right, I, I've been meaning to reach out to AC, but I've got all this immediate stuff. I want to tell her to go 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 do this piece. So yeah, like following up, it's such it's really wise wise counsel. 
you know, it's it it is hard because like yeah, I feel like you know once you I'm af- always afraid I'll follow up and a annoy them right? Um, right because like I get so many PR follow ups and I'm like stop following up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I'm like worried that like I'll annoy them. But b like you know like that like uh, it's like that thing like you're saying there's still a chance, you know? <laughs> like it's like um, it, it's it's like once you get that rejection, there is no more chance, and you're closing that door, you know, by asking for that rejection. Um, but yeah, this was a case where like, I'm so glad I did it instead of just moving on because I would have started working on it for this, you know, much less low, like lower paying pub. And then like, maybe they would have gotten back to me and been like, Hey, we want it. And I would be like, well, shit, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, um, it, definitely a lesson learned. It is always worth following up. And I love digging into um, the way a freelancer goes about crafting pitches and the process by which you log them and submit them and, and, and everything. Um, so when you were like kind of backing up to when you were sending some out to Runner's World and getting you know six, seven, eight rejections, um, how did you? How have your pitches sort of evolved and and maybe gotten to a point where you've got a pretty good formula about if it's going to get accepted? This is how it typically looks like. Yeah. Um, that has been such an evolving process for me because like, I, yeah, I, yeah, you know, I'm like not, I didn't go to J school, although I've heard that they don't teach us at J school. So I guess it doesn't matter, but, um, no, no, they, they don't at all. I mean, I, I blitzed my journalism program at uh, UMass Amherst. Um, I was a double major. I added journalism late and, and even in uh MFA program I went to in creative nonfiction, it's like, they don't they don't teach that as a skill because but ultimately that's the skill you need really it's crucial um okay so i i would say you know what i have changed and you know so uh, two things i actually don't pitch that much um and that although this year i have been pitching more because uh i have really wanted to transition to the projects i want to do but um my advice for like you know, young starting out journalists is to avoid pitching in that, like, you want to get repeat work from clients because that's the easiest way to make a living, right? So, like, if you're having to make your work by pitching constantly or, like, if you're pitching 50 or 60 stories a year or whatever, I think you would be better served to pitch less and spend more time on the work you are assigned to get repeat assignments. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not popular advice, but I think that, like, you know, Pitching is useful, and especially when you want to level up, right? Or, or if you want to change your beat, um, you know, then you do need to be able to pitch. Um, and so, let's I'll get to that that piece of it in a second. But I always try and stress to like journalists, young freelancers, that the best, most lucrative way to make money is to have repeat clients and editors coming back to you and saying, "Can you do this other thing?" Um, Okay, so that piece of that piece of advice aside, um, right? When you want to level up or or get a new client or change your beat, um, the thing I have learned the most this last year of really like now I'm only pitching long form features. Like that's what I want to be doing. And I had this like moment where I was like, you know what? Why am I pitching? You know, two hundred dollar service journalism. I, I mean, I love service journalism, and if people assign assign to me, I'll happily do it. But what I really want to be doing is features, so I should be pitch, pitching features, right? So um, the thing. 
I have learned is that you almost have to report the whole story, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to justify at first. Um, but then you start actually selling stuff and realizing that like, oh, wait a second, this does work. The thing that has changed probably the most about my pitching is that, you know, for example, this pitch I sold yesterday, um, I've actually been reporting this story for three to four months while I've been trying to figure out, you know, the right spot for it. So, you know, this, the pitch started out with an anecdote. Um, that, you know, was, you know, a scene. And then from the scene, you know, I've got, uh, then we move on to kind of the nugget of the problem that I want to investigate. Other thing that I've really struggled with is narrowing down what is this story about? Because I tend to be like, oh, there's this cool thing. Oh, and this other cool thing. And oh my gosh, this cool thing, right? Like, so I tend to like want to stick it all in there because I find like the whole world to be fascinating all of the time. (laughs) Um, But it's so much better if you can say like this is what the story is about um and even though like i had thought i had done that for this particular pitch that got about yesterday the editor and i had to hop on the phone um and he still kind of wanted some clarification about like you know what is that that struggle that's happening here that's gonna like what is the story still really really about is that nugget is really important um and then you know showing that you have done at least enough research that the story is going to be more or less there and still sometimes things fall apart, right? And I think editors do understand that. But for this story in particular, like I had several of my characters picked out um, and I had quotes from them so that like they knew that like these people are willing to more or less work with me. And I'm not just saying these are the people I'm going to interview or they may or may not be up for it, right? Like I know these people are already going to sit down with me. Um, So those are kind of the basics is like, you know, making sure you've got kind of a scene so people can understand, you know, what this, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, making sure you've got the nugget of the problem and then introducing a couple of the characters. Um, so that's kind of worked for me. My pitches are quite long at this point, and I know some editors don't like that, but I figure they can stop reading. <laughs> um, but um, I just found that like when I was sh- sending short pitches, I was finding that you know editors kind of wrote back and were like, uh, need more info. you know. And so I was like, well, why, might as well just stick all this in. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's bad advice, but it's worked for me. Um, does that help? It does help. And I, I wonder, too, what your – okay, so if you're reporting, doing a lot of pre <clears> – excuse me, a lot of pre-reporting and uh, sometimes several months' worth, um, what are the conversations that you're having with your sources when you're – when you don't even – when you don't have a publication lined up yet? You just kind of have your, your dream of where – like, all right, I want this to land yeah. here. Um, but I'm still going to talk to you and ask you questions as if this thing is going actually happening. Happening. Um, so, what are those conversations like when you're kind of lobbying your sources for a story that doesn't quite yet have a home yet? There are two things I try to do. Um, I try to a be very clear about that and be like, you know, I'm a freelancer, um, and so I have to sell this story, and it may take me months to sell this story. Um, and you know, I also like to, I tell people I work extraordinarily slowly. Um, people are, I think are always really shocked at the like slow pace of my work. Um, and it's not that I'm bad at my job. I mean, maybe I am, but it's just that like you know, um, the publishing is extraordinarily slow, um, especially in magazines, right? Newspapers. 
newspapers are fast, but yeah, you know, magazines are slow. And then, you know, I just like, I have to have all of my ducks in a row, right? Like I want to have every piece of paperwork. And if I have to go through the FOIA process to get it, I will get it, you know? Um, so, so I'm very clear about a, right. I'm independent. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't have a magazine backing me at this moment, but here's who I am. Here's some of the other work that I have done here, you know, um, and I would usually send people to my website or whatever to see that I am legitimately a journalist um, and not just taking their time. Um, and um, and then just, yeah, being really upfront about like, you're not going to hear from me for three or four months, you know, likely. Um, and then I'm going to come back in your inbox and I'm going to be like, guess what? I saw the story. Let's do an interview tomorrow. Um, that's just kind of how it works. And for the most part, if people are interested in telling their stories, I find that they are willing to work with me under those parameters. But I just try to just lay those out out front so everybody knows kind of, you know, I may never sell this story, but I'm interested in it. I think your story is important to me. And, and I'm going to try. And I think a lot of uh, freelancers always – they're always interested in how how uh, everyone generates their ideas, where their ideas come from. So where do, where do yours come from and how do you refill the well so you can uh, – you know, to, uh, yeah. when you feel like pitching, like you, you feel like you've, uh, you've got a, a stable of ideas? Good question. I wish I had a really clear answer on that because they kind of come from everywhere. Like, I just feel like it just comes from being, um, a, a really like just curious person. Um, and like feeling like the whole world is like full of, full of curious things. Um, so often I'll read a book, um, and I will like underline the like pieces of the book that like, I feel like deserved more attention and I want to look into those. Um, so like, for example, um, I recently read Michael Pollan's new book on, um, uh, psychedelics, uh, which is great by the way. Um, but, uh, there's, he talks a little bit about like the, like Johnny Appleseed of psychedelic mushrooms who happens to like ha have resided in Kentucky. And there's like two sentences on him and so I like underlined it and I was like wait that would be such a good feature like I want to know about that guy you know um, so um, I haven't actually pitched that one please don't steal my idea but um, <laughs> you know but, um, uh, actually you can't I'm really busy somebody else can take that uh, it's fine um, so so you know I don't know I just think things like that I do get some people coming to me um, which is great um, you know keeping good networks of sources um, and just you know making sure that you know, you are, you know, courteous and, and you help and, you know, polite to sources so that when they have something, they think, oh, you know, I know a journalist. Um, I get a lot of, you know, stories that way. Um, so, yeah. And honestly, like the world is just so full of interesting things that I don't understand that I, you know, I'm constantly looking up, um, you know, and thinking, could this be a story? So how did you land with uh, Netflix for the Innocent Man Project? Right. So I was um, digging into the Denise Haraway case and um, got partnered up with this uh, documentary uh, that was working on John uh, – doing a docu documentary about John Grisham's book, The Innocent Man, which focuses on uh, Ronald Williamson's case, the Deborah Sue Carter murder. Uh, but the Deborah Sue Carter murder and the uh, Denise Haraway case are kind of inextricably like – or not – well, they – no – Sorry. They are both like totally intertwined. You kind of can't cover one without covering the other. And so I had been looking into the Denise Haraway case and really knew a lot about it. Um, and so kind of got, you know, uh, got into it that way. Um, and it was 
it was such a fun way to approach a story um, because I think I think about my stories in, you know, kind of a two-dimensional sense, uh, you know, living on a printed page. Um, and it was so cool to have the opportunity to, like, understand how sound and music and, you know, visuals can really, you know, enhance your storytelling. Um, and it's funny. It's been, like, actually a little bit hard to transition back to print because it's, like, so rich to work in documentary and feel like, oh, you know what we could do is we can shoot this and we can shoot it like this, you know, um, and then to, to, to kind of come back to print and be like, well, I guess I'm back to writing sentences. Not that I don't love print, but like, I feel like I lost some of my storytelling tools, but you know, um, so, but it, it also is forcing me to, to work harder to feel like, you know, I can tell a story just as well in print. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And I, what's, what's kind of cool is that, you know, you, you, do the this Netflix thing, and then you're able to parlay that the um, the arrival fallacy of it into this piece that you wrote for the New York Times, and I I love this this notion that you tackle in this piece, um, and it, it goes to a two part thing. I want to ask you like how how sort of just generating work generates work, so to speak. Like you wouldn't have this arrival fantasy uh, arrival fallacy thing had you not done the Netflix thing, which parlayed into this column. Um, and this this little feature. So um, maybe you could speak to what a rival fallacy is, and we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So a rival fallacy is this idea that you are going to be happy once you achieve X, right? Um, so I will be happy once my documentary is up on Netflix, right? Um, and I think I really believed that to be true, right? Like I thought that like I worked really hard for, you know, a year and a half on this thing and I felt like you know we're going to get these innocent men out of prison like that's going to happen I'm going to feel like my work is meaningful um, and you know a thing that like people don't talk about that much like I, I don't know like my work up until Innocent Man, some of it was very meaningful. And, you know, there was the, like, you know, occasional feature that I sold that I felt like, yes, like, th I am doing good work. But then, like, a lot of it, and I think this is true for a lot of freelancers, um, but a lot of it then was, like, you know, I don't know, 10 ways to get great apps for summer because that's what pays your bills, you know? And mm -hmm. so, like, you have – well, at least I have to do some of that work um, to make my, you know, my bills and my mortgage and all of that. So um, I, I really always struggled with, like, am I doing good enough work that actually makes a difference? Because, like, that's what matters to me. Like, I don't care at all about being known or famous or winning prizes, really. What I want to do is I want to do work that, like, matters beyond myself. Um, and so Innocent Man gave me that opportunity to really feel like, look, we are, like, casting a, a big, big lens on, you know, the justice system and how fallible it is and you know, confessions, which maybe a lot of people have never thought about. Um, and so I felt like this was going to be it. And then, you know, it goes up online and like your life really just goes on, uh, to be totally honest. And it's funny, I'm, I'm working on another little small documentary with somebody. Um, and the, the subject of that documentary, like, has it very much in his mind that he is going to be famous. Like, this is it. I kind of want to sit down with him and be like, your life just kind of just goes on. That's fine. Like, that's, that's actually great. Like, I like my life, you know, like, I'm, I'm pretty 
pretty happy with my life, but it feels surprisingly different than what you anticipated, you know, and that's a rival fallacy. So you get there and you're happy for a second when you see your work that you have worked so hard on, like getting this moment of attention. Um, and then, yeah, like humans have kind of a set point of happiness that we tend to return to. And they've documented this with, you know, lottery winners. Um, they've documented this with uh, yeah, the, the, the example I use in that New York Times piece is professors who got tenure, right? They got tenure. They're no happy, happier or like less happy than those who didn't get tenure a couple of years later. Um, this very much happened to me. And I had kind of a really shit summer where I just felt like, wow, I've done the best thing I'm ever going to do in my career. And that's that. And now I feel pretty depressed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I started thinking about what might be happening to me. And I, I think around the same time, Anthony Bourdain killed himself um, mm. or died by suicide. And I don't know. I'm not a celebrity person. I'm not that interested in celebrities. But I did like Anthony Bourdain. And, I, I, I you know, I kind of felt like, why, why, you know, why do so many high achievers seem to struggle with things like this? Um, and started doing some creative Googling, which is how I came to, like, oh, there's this thing I've never heard of. Um, and then pitched it to the New York Times. Um, so, you know, I think it kind of comes back to, you know, just, you know, feeling like, wait, what's actually going on here? What does this say about society? And my, you know, my training as a sociologist and a social scientist to think about, like, well, let's think critically about what could possibly be happening here and then turning that into a story. And I think that's kind of like what I've kind of done for a lot of my career is like, wait, what's happening here? Why don't I understand this? Let's let's see if I can turn it into a story. Um, And it worked out very nicely in that in that instance. Yeah. And the whole idea of uh, of this ties into um, the, the hedonic treadmill yes. to a, 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 right. It just kind of you, you reach this a certain level, but then that becomes kind of the new normal and then it just feels normal. And then you need to you need another another high, so to speak. Yes. Exactly. So, right. I got this like amazing assignment yesterday that I'm so excited about. Right. And then like I, I had to remind myself that like I'm going to feel super awesome for the next six weeks as I dig into this. And like I love doing the work like that's my favorite thing in the world. Um, and then it's like there's going to be a letdown, you know, like it's going to come out and then like I'm going to be like, oh, God, now what do I do? You know, uh, or is that the best thing I've ever written, which I think to myself all the time. Um, and I like cannot <laughs> seem to stop thinking that like, you know, like I know it's not going to be the case. I know there will be other projects. Like, this isn't it for me. But I always, like, as soon as it's over, a week or two after it's over, I think, is that the best thing I'm ever going to have done? <laughs> so, Yeah, and there's a great um, – you've probably seen it, and billions of people have, I feel like, uh, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, TED Talk about um, about – essentially like quote unquote like going going home like she had to wrestle with eat pray love being probably her greatest success and so how do you go back to work when your best work might be behind you and so she identified that you know just the mere fact of sitting down and generating fiction or or whatever or nonfiction was like her going home and if she can get to that place of generation and have that be the victory, then she can proceed with her art. Mm. So is that something you kind of 
Uh, well, ha, ha, do you sort of uh, relate to that? So mine is a little bit different. Uh, so the way I have found that I am able to get kind of through it um, is to think of my work as benefiting others. Like that's what I really want out of my work. Um, and so like even though like obviously, you know, as any other writer, I have an ego that I like needs constant love and feeding. Um, so, right, like I but, – but I think like what I tend to do to help myself through that like is that like the biggest best piece I've ever going to write or is like are those the most beautiful prose I'm ever going to craft like is to think like no there's so many other people out there who need their stories told and maybe I won't end up telling them in the New York Times, like maybe it will be for a small local paper, you know, but there are still people who need help. You know, I can continue to do that work and it may not be glamorous. It may not get a lot of attention, but that work still matters. Um, and so one of the things I did when I was kind of at the depths of the survival fallacy and feeling really like just, wow, I'm never going to do anything that I like really care about again was that I started a writing program in our local federal prison um, because I was feeling like, so, like, you know, my work didn't matter, you know, or I wasn't doing work that mattered. Um, but that was one way I could make my work matter, right? So instead of trying to, you know, I, I wasn't having a lot of luck pitching criminal justice stuff. Um, and so instead, I just took my work to the prison um, and helped other folks tell their stories. Um, so I think that like that is what I use to get through the idea of like, it's possible I'll never do anything quite as cool as a Netflix documentary. Um, that's but that's fine. I think as long as I keep pushing forward to try and use, you know, journalism to help other people. You alluded to it to it earlier that you love the they they love the work, and I wonder where you feel most engaged in the process. Mm. Well, that's a great question. Um, I love interviewing people. Um, I love listening to people's stories. I will sit and listen to people all day long. Um, so that is a really, like, my favorite part of the pro process, almost to a part, like a point where it's a problem where I will over-report right. stories, um, you know, that, but I just, you know, that part of the uh, process is probably my favorite. Um, and yeah, I like going through documents. Um, you know, I love having my receipts in order, right? So like, you know, fact checking, I think is very validating to me and be like, yes, I have all of these things. Um, and I'm ready, you know, to like, um, I, I don't mind the process of, uh, this is taking some getting used to, but I don't mind the process of calling the person who the story is, the unflattering story is about and saying, these are the allegations that I have. And this is the backup that I have to prove it. What do you want to say? I don't love that part of it, but it also kind of feels like I, you know, I like doing it because I like making sure that, you know, everything is, everything is above board. Um, so I'm learning to love that process a little bit more. Um, yeah. Um, the actual writing part is hard. Uh, that's probably my least favorite part of the process. If I could just interview people all day long, that would be my dream job. With respect to how you kind of, um, draw inspiration and kind of fill the well in terms of, you know, just doing, reading other people's work, and that could be books or magazine pieces that, um, what are, what are some of those that you've drawn inspiration from? Maybe, maybe books or magazine articles that you return to, to remind yourself how it's done and be like, all right, they did it. So if I just dig in, I can do it too. Good question. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty religious New Yorker reader, but not saying that that is always like the best of all, you know, arbiters of journalism or anything like that. But I do try to read it and think critically about how are these stories constructed, um, you know? Um, and yeah. so I, 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 to some degree, like, I feel like journalism has ruined my ability to sit and just read a story uh, because <laughs> I always am thinking about how did this get constructed or like, what was the like reverse engineering of this like reporting? you know, how to get that detail. Um, so I do try to sit down with a New Yorker every week, although they, like everybody else, they stack up, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, think about at least how those pieces came into being. Um, and, you know, I have subscriptions, of course, the New York times and the Washington post and read those, although I don't do that much newspaper journalism at this moment, but, um, you know, I think that always has, you know, relevance in terms of figuring out how people are doing fact finding. This is going to sound terrible, but I tend not to read nonfiction books twice. I, mm-hmm. uh, there's just so much out there. Um, you know, there's so many. I love to read nonfiction books, and I read lots of them. Um, but I find it hard to return to them. And there are only a few that I return to, but they're mostly books that are in writing that I return to um, versus, like, the actual nonfiction books themselves. What are the books you return to the on writing? So um, my, you know, my very, very favorite um, is actually um, uh, Anne Patchett has a book called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, you know, uh, short stories, but it's kind of about her life as a writer. And, you know, she's a fiction writer, so it's a little bit different. But um, I just find her words and her advice to be very, you know, clear and and frank. Um, I think sometimes books on writing can, like, over oversell the writing life. I don't think she does that, um, which is nice uh, to like understand that like even people at the very top are struggling a little bit is nice. Um, and then, you know, the fun thing about having this uh, prison writing workshop is that um, I've gone back to some of the, you know, original books on writing that I read years and years ago, um, like Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, right, um, which is so great. And it's been fun to go through that with um, a bunch of guys who have never thought about writing in any other way than like the five paragraph essay that was taught, you know, in their high school. Um, and so I've been enjoying going through that again. Um, so those are the two books that I think, you know, every writer should have on their shelf, um, able to, you know, reference when they need it. And also like when you're kind of deconstructing a New Yorker piece and, uh, and of course you're at a level of, of proficiency and competency and visibility where, where maybe, maybe this doesn't strike you, um, uh, as as it does for 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 other people, but um, sometimes I I wonder how um, how writers and journalists and freelancers process feelings of competition and jealousy among peers. Uh, is this something that you wrestle with? Oh God, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so awful. Uh, yes, this is like one part of my uh, personality that like I really, really wish that I could change. Um, I'm horribly competitive. I've always been that way. Even as a kid, like losing like a board game was like a full on meltdown for me. Um, and so, yes, uh, in fact, it's so much so that like, right, sometimes I like find it hard to read my peers, uh, right? Uh, because like I just think about like how much better they are at this than I am. Um, and so... I think that's very normal, uh, but I try not to let it be crippling, right? Like, I should want to read great journalism, even though, like, deep down, I'm like, 
why did not I not write this or why why are they so much better than me right um yeah. so so yeah I, you know I think a part of it is just recognizing that you have this ugly trait inside of you and that it is this ugly trait um and that like somebody else's success does not really take away from your own yes there are to some degree limited bylines but you know I should be using their success to push myself to be better right um so that doesn't mean that I haven't silenced the occasional person on Twitter who is just just winning at all things all the time, and I just need a break. <laughs> um, that, that is very real and very normal. And I think if you're a writer and you're feeling that way, it's so normal. Just do it. Do what you have to do to get through. But you know, if there is truly an exemplary piece of writing that everybody on the internet is talking about, and you're avoiding it because you just like can't stomach it, read it. Just read it. it it's probably useful, um, and uh, hopefully, you know, you can grab a little something from what they've done and and uh someday they'll be envying you maybe yeah maybe not nice and as as we kind of wind down here ac uh of course uh coming down to the end and i like asking people for a recommendation to unplug from whatever it is they do and that can be anything so uh, what is your what is your recommendation for the listeners out there who might need a little distraction from their every day can I give you two? Please, more the barrier. Okay. <laughs> well, the first one's the first one. I mean, you're not going to be surprised by, but <clears throat> if you possibly can get a couple of chickens, <laughs> they're so <laughs> so enjoyable. They're so fun. I kind of cannot believe how much joy these like little baby T Rexes have brought me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the first one. I honestly every day at about seven fifteen, I go out and I sit in my chicken yard and like a couple of them hop on my lap and it's just like a good way to like end the day and be like okay you know what like these chickens do not care about my byline these chickens do not care whether I sold something or not you know like that it's just anyways I, I mean any pet would do it but chickens are su- supremely fun um and they also provide breakfast it's pretty great mm-hmm. um and then the second one which is like a little bit more serious but it's something that I've been trying to do um and I found it quite effective um and this is um comes from a positive psychologist Martin Seligman he's kind of the father of positive psychology um but he has this exercise where um he asked people at the end of the day um, to journal about the, you know, three things that happened to them that day that were positive. Um, And I have found this exercise to be hugely, hugely effective in terms of like making you reflect on your day in a positive light. And so like so much of my work is like goat moves at a glacial pace, right? Like I'll file a FOIA and not hear anything. I'll, you know, yesterday I think I sent out 10 interview requests and nobody got back to me, you know? And so (laughs) a lot of my work moves really, really slow. And it's really easy for me to fixate on all the things that I didn't do or all the things that, like, you know, didn't go well um, during the day. But, like, taking a few minutes at the end of the day to just – and, like, some it's often really, like, simple things like I got to ride my mountain bike or, you know, I had time to sit with my chickens or, you know, um, my husband and I connected really well, you know, and had a great conversation, um, you know, which sometimes when you've been married a long time, you kind of forget to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So it can be simple stuff like that. Um, and it's just – it's a really, really nice way to end your day and remember that, like, even the shittiest days have some positive moments in them. Um, and uh, I highly recommend that. Oh, that's amazing. All right. So where can people find you online, AC, and uh, get more familiar with your work? 
Sure. Um, so I'm most active on Twitter, uh, where I am just um, at AC Shelton. Um, I have an Instagram that's the same, um, and um, and then on Facebook as well as AC Shelton. Um, and again, my website is www.acshelton.com. So um, it's not super creative, but easy to find. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for for carving the time and talking shop and uh, and everything yeah. in between. So this was a lot of fun, and thank you so much for doing this. This was great. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Tasteful. That was a tasteful CNFN episode, wasn't it? Thanks to Baypath and Riverteeth for the support. And of course, AC Shilton. acshilton.com. Go check out her work. It's good stuff. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Consider leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts. I hope I've made something worth sharing, so if it means anything to you, pass it along to a friend. That's how this is going to grow, by finding our people. The people who are into this genre, the creative nonfiction genre, who can benefit from it. If you dig in telling true stories, you know someone else who does. Pass it along. Hand off the baton. Keep the conversation going, of course, on Twitter, at CNFPod, and Instagram, at CNFPod, Facebook uh, at CNF Podcast, or just searching Creative Nonfiction Podcast, it will pop up. I think that's a wrap, friend. I don't have much to say, except remember, if you can do, interview, see ya!